Hey, we're um, in our series right now called Shiloh Road, and we're kind of going back to our vision. And I think right now at times like this, when there is so much uncertainty, when things are so chaotic and, and so disjointed, it is so important, it is now more than ever, that we have to go back to vision, to stay on focus and keep our eyes, our mind, our heart moving in the direction that we are going as a church. And so we've been in this series, we've been talking about our core values, the things that are so, so important to us. Week one was pursue God together, that we are on this journey together, moving in the same direction, that we need other people who are going the same direction as we are. Two weeks ago, we talked about how important people are. People matter. People matter to God. People matter to us. And again, that is so central to our vision. This week, we're going to talk about invest and invite. Invest and invite. And I want to kind of give you an idea of what it means to invest. I thought this was a great example by a guy named Frankie Lapina. Watch this. If you aren't real sure what that is, um, you probably, everyone I would hope know what a Zoom meeting is now, but it is a Zoom meeting for his office, which he decided to go to the Baltimore Ravens Monday night football game and still attend his meeting. And his boss said, hey, um, you shouldn't wear Ravens gear. And she said, sorry, I just hate when I'm stuck at home having to watch Monday night football in the meeting. So, but as I was watching that and thinking, and he's done a lot of others since then, it kind of became an internet hit, and he's done some lifting weights and riding a snowmobile. It's kind of just now become kind of a big joke. But as I was thinking about it, think about the investment that went into that. Like, that did not just happen. Like, you put some time and effort and thought into, hey, I'm going to still go to the Baltimore Ravens game and attend my, my work meeting. And setting up this rig that had a green screen and had your laptop and was connected to the internet still so that you could be in your meeting and still be at a football game. And of course, it's, a, it's kind of a big joke. But at the same time, there was a lot that went into that. Time, resources, money, effort. Like this person invested in what he was doing. An investment for us as a church is essential for the life of a church. Investment in people. Because people matter. We must invest in them. And we live in a world right now that seems to be more and more disconnected from churches. And for some, I cannot blame them because of what some churches have gone through. And you think about things like the, the sex scandal in our Catholic churches. You think about money scandals that seem to pop up on the news constantly. Or, or pastors, ministers who are making terrible decisions abuse, and no matter what title they have on the door, unfortunately, all churches get lumped into that. And it creates kind of a black cloud over churches. And so there's a lot that goes into that. And you have more and more people who are deciding to walk away from churches and separating themselves 
from churches. You wonder, well, how, how is it that we still invest in How do we connect with people who aren't here, who don't feel like they have a place, who don't know Jesus? How do we connect with those people? And I would say it comes back to investing. In the DNA of Shiloh, in our history, I think investing in people has always been a priority. People who have been broken and hurt, people who have gone through abuse and divorce, people who are broken and addicted to stuff, that Shiloh has seemed to always reach out, embrace, and love people. And that has to be a priority as a church. It has to be a priority. And I want to kind of remind us for a second, and I think it's so important that we do this every so often, but asking the question, what is it that we're for? Because we live in a world that identifies itself by what we are against. We we want what we are against to define us, but it is what we are for that shapes us. It is what we are for that matters. We are for people. We are for children. We are for marriage. We are for those who are broken and hurting. We are for those who can't speak for themselves and don't have a voice. We are for people who are seeking freedom from addiction. See, and here's the problem. What you are against has the capability to blind you from what you are for. You can become so focused on the things that you're against that over time you actually forget what it is that you're for and what matters. And so the whole purpose of this series is to bring us back to that central idea. This is what we are for. We are for pursuing God together. We are for people. And because we are for people, we are going to invest and invite. And so this morning, I want to kind of jump into a story that that for many of you, I think, will be familiar. For some of you, you may have never heard it. But I want to jump into this story, and I want to step back and look at it from a different perspective than you probably ever looked at it before. And it's a story that happens in Acts chapter 15. And so we're going to start in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. And we're teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, they were so concerned that they would be circumcised, but it wasn't just about circumcision. It was about following all of the customs taught by Moses. It was being obedient to the law. And so you have this group of people who are going around to people who are just making a decision to follow Jesus. And they're saying, hey, it's great that you love Jesus. It's great that you're wanting to be a child of God. But there's a little operation you're going to have to do before you go down that road. Yeah, I want in. Sorry, that was... But you have to be obedient to the commands of Moses. 
And so these believers with Paul and Barnabas say, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go down to Jerusalem. And we're going to meet with the apostles and the elders. And we're going to make a decision on this matter. And this is what's known as the Jerusalem Council. So these believers get together with Paul and Barnabas, the apostles, the elders, and they start discussing this. And in this conversation, some Pharisees who are now believers in Jesus stand up and say, hey, it's great that these Gentiles want to come and follow Jesus and be the people of God, but they've got to follow the commands of God. They don't get off that easy. They've got to go through all of the rites of purification. They've got to go through all the dietary restrictions. They've really got to be the people of God if they're going to follow God. And you think, well, why were they so connected? If they had made a decision to follow, why were they so connected? This was their life. You have to think, this is around 50 A.D. There is no New Testament their Bible was the, what we call Old Testament. That was their scriptures. And there were these letters that were starting to circulate around, but there wasn't this collection that was bound together and say, oh, well, that's in 2 Corinthians. Their Bible was the Old Testament. That was what they knew. And most of these early believers were Jewish. And so they grew up in the synagogue with this being taught and this being just embedded in their life. They knew it. They lived it. They loved it. This was a part of everything. And then Peter, in this council, stands up and says, Hey, I've, I've got to remind you about what happened to me. Th this happened about 10 years ago, and ever since I've been eating bacon right? This sheet, I was having this vision, this sheet was let down from the four corners of heaven, and I was in this trance, and I looked out, and it had all these creatures, clean and unclean, and this voice says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter says, well, no, no, no. I stood up, and I said, no way, Lord, I will not eat anything unclean. And then this voice answers me as I'm praying. It says, don't call anything unclean that God has made. And this wasn't just about dietary restrictions. This was about people embracing Gentiles. And so Peter has this new message now, and he starts going to these other churches and saying, hey, God has appeared to me and said now that Gentiles are welcomed in. They can be part of the people, the family of God. I want to remind you about that moment. And so Peter's been telling what God has showed him. Now, I want you to imagine for just a second, you're Peter. Your entire life, you have been told that it is in the law that you do not enter the house of a Gentile. You do not cross the threshold of their door. And the very next day after this vision, Peter walks into the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. Can you imagine 
the inter-turmoil and internal dialogue going on with Peter. As he walks across the threshold into a Gentile's house, something just a day before was completely forbidden his entire life. I would imagine that was a very, very difficult step to take. You know, I found out this last couple of years that I have a problem with loyalty. And it's not a problem with being loyal. It's actually a problem with being too loyal, probably to a fault. I, I was telling one of my mentors about this, and I, I actually kind of feel embarrassed by this um, to share with you because you're going to laugh and you're going to think you're a moron. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you think that most weeks, and that's okay. But about a year or two ago, someone asked a question said, hey, how much do you pay for your cell phone? And I said, well, da-da-da-da, because we have, you know, four people in our house on phone now. It's crazy. They said, well, have you ever shopped around your cell phone contract? I said, no. I've been with AT&T since 2000. I said, maybe you should look into that. So I said, okay. I felt kind of awkward about this. And so my wife and I went to Verizon. And I opened up the door, and I walked through the door, and I felt like a traitor. <laughs> How can I come in to this place? Because I'm with AT&T. Now, let me give you a little background. I've been with AT&T 22 years now. There is one time AT&T has ever done anything that was in my interest. And that was only because Brandon Deaver was the manager of the store, and he was helping me out. I can promise you, AT&T does not care about me. They do not care if I take my contract somewhere else. Just holding the suspense, I'm still with AT&T. <laughs> Baby steps. Baby, I went inside. You know, next time is going to be actually signing a contract. But no, um, I, I can't imagine. I mean, that, that was over a phone, right? That's kind of stupid. It's insignificant. But Peter's whole life, he's been told, do not set foot inside the house of a Gentile. And he has this vision from God. And the very next day, he walks across the threshold. My guess is Peter struggled with that moment. With that law that was in his heart saying, all right, God is opening new doors and God is welcoming people in who do not know him, including people who are not like us. And so Peter reminds them in this Jerusalem council of this experience that he had and how he was praying and God 
open the door to Gentiles. And then on the heels of that, Paul and Barnabas, they stand up and they say, no, Peter is right. God has been doing amazing things as we've been ministering to and sharing God's love with Gentiles. And then James stands up and he says, no, they're right. God is blessing Gentiles and then welcoming them into his family. And we need to be a part of what God is doing in this world. And then James finishes off his little discourse with this. It's in my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It is my, go back real quick. We should not make it difficult for Gentiles turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, now think about this. In the Torah, there are 613 laws. All four of those are a part of that law. And you think, well, well, why does he just give them four? And I think the reason, and I don't know this, I'm, I'm, this is just a guess. I think the reason is because these four could be seen very easily by people and offend people who are faithful. That's my guess. I don't know that's why. But he picks four. And three of them are really about dietary laws. And then one of them is about sexual immorality. And he says you would be good, he's going to say you'd be good to just keep away from these, right? You would be good to not make these part of your life. And so that's the counsel, right? That's the counsel part of this chapter. So Paul, Barnabas, and they choose two others, Judas and Silas. And they say, we're going to send you with a letter that you're going to take from Jerusalem to Antioch and you're going to deliver it to them and read it to them so that you can bless them. Right? So, verse 23. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. Um, we have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and distributed you or disturbed you excuse me troubling your minds by what they said so there's this group that's gone out my thought is they have the best intentions in the world like they're going out trying i think to be loving but this letter says no they were troubling your mind making it more difficult. Now, this next word, I think the most, the, the biggest miracle in all of the Bible happens right here, verse 50, 25. So we all agreed. 
Anyone who's grown up in church would say, amen. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. And they send this letter to Antioch with their blessing. Now, let's talk about this letter. You have to understand and just be reminded there is no technology. This is a handwritten letter on a piece of paper. Probably papyrus, or parchment, and it was sent to a city 400 plus miles away from Jerusalem. And there was no FedEx or email, or planes, trains, and automobiles. This was delivered by hand. I want you to think for just a second about the investment that went into this letter. This letter that was basically 112 words in Greek. I counted them. 112 words. But there was so much more in this letter. Think about the investment of time, of resources, of money, of people that went into making this happen. I mean, Paul and Barnabas in Antioch hear about what's happening and they travel with some other believers to Jerusalem. 400 miles. This is about, it said, about two weeks' journey on foot. You could also sail around the coast. But they travel down from Antioch to Jerusalem. They gather all of these people, and they spend time having conversation about what's going on in the lives of these other people 400 miles away. They make a decision. They write a letter. And then they pick some other people to send back on this journey with them so that they could read this to them personally and confirm that this is what the apostles and the elders decided. Think about what was invested in these people. And their message is simple. 
We want to eliminate all of the roadblocks that would keep you from coming to Jesus. We don't want to give you anything that would burden you in following him. We want to open up all the doors and welcome you into his kingdom to be a part of what he is doing. Right? There's the investment, and then the invitation is simple. All the roadblocks are gone. Come follow Jesus. Come join us regardless of where you've been or what you've believed or what other gods you've worshipped. Come follow Jesus. There was a lot that they invested in this letter. Now, here's the deal. You've probably read this story before, especially if you've grown up in churches. You've probably heard this story. And my guess is, like me, it's just another story. And you've never really put a whole lot of thought about what went into that letter. I mean, it's not long. But the investment in it was huge. It was massive. And you think, well, well why? I, I think it goes back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Right? I see a problem. Paul sees a person. They were investing in the lives of these people because they mattered to God. And because they mattered to God, they were willing to go to great lengths to make sure that they heard the story of Jesus and that they were welcomed into the family of God. I see problems. I I see that we're 400 plus miles away from Jerusalem. I see that there are dangers in traveling there, that it's going to take time out of my life and time away from my friends and my family. It's going to take resources to be able to get a ship or walk or have the tools and have the supplies and have the food, or it's going to take money. There were so many things that could have gotten in their way. But they wanted to eliminate all the roadblocks because there's enough roadblocks for people following Jesus as it is. I mean, I mean, think about the roadblocks that are there just intellectually. The God of this universe became flesh and blood and came down to live among the people that he created, to become one of them. And that he suffered and died because the sins of this world that were put on him. And he went to a cross and he was buried. But on the third day, God himself rose him from the dead. And now he's inviting you to sell out on everything that you've ever had allegiance to and follow and submit your life to King Jesus alone. intellectually, that would be enough of a roadblock for anyone. And so these apostles and elders, and Paul and Barnabas, they say, we want to get rid of all of the roadblocks that could keep someone from following Jesus. And we want to make it easy for them to come to God. 
because we believe that God loves them and God is pursuing them and God is using us to reach them. People were their priority. And you think, well, how in the world would they simplify things down to those four little commands? How, how would they simplify it that much? I mean, because they're leaving out a lot of things that you need to do to be a good Christian. I mean, you need to watch your language, and you need to not gossip, and you need to be careful about your anger, and you need to watch out for greed and idolatry. There's all these other things that need to be a part of their life. But I think there's this disconnect between our mentality and theirs. I, I think there's this disconnect for us in the way that we see our role in this grand story. Because our inclination is, okay, you want to f- come follow Jesus? Well, here, there's some things that you're going to need to do to get your life right so you can come and follow him. We're going to draw some lines and we're going to establish some ground rules and then you can follow Jesus. Because we assume that if we teach people the right thing to do, then they will do it, right? Because if people know the right thing to do, then obviously they would do the right thing every time. Here's the problem with that mentality. It completely minimizes the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. And it puts all of the emphasis on us to be compelling or convincing or convicting so that people will come follow Jesus. Here's where I think their ideas were different than ours. Here's what I think they believed. And again, I'm just, I'm just speculating. I think they thought if we introduce someone to Jesus and help them see the beauty of Jesus and they fall in love with Jesus and the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives, then he is going to transform them into the image of Christ. And all the pressure is not on you. See, I think we confuse our roles at times. And honestly, I think it's why we think evangelism is so difficult. Because we've got to have the reason. And we've got to be able to argue. And we've got to be able to talk well. My question is where is the Spirit's role in that world? See, here's what I believe. I believe when people fall in love with Jesus and submit their life to him, all the other stuff 
is going to come down with it. And it doesn't happen overnight. See, I think for years our mentality has been change and get your life right and then you can come follow Jesus. And yet Jesus' message was constantly, come follow me and your life will change. As you start to walk with me, you're going to start to see things in your life that don't belong and that need God to redeem. And is there a role for teaching? And yes, this is, yes, there's all of that. And God's going to use that and work in that. But I think we have this idea that it's about 90% on us and about 10% on the Spirit as people come to Him. When I think it's about 99%, on the Spirit, and about 1% on us being faithful to share what Jesus has done in our life and inviting people to join Him in that journey and trusting that God is the one that's going to change, that God is the one that is going to transform. Because it's not, hey, people come in and my life is a mess. Well, here's all the sin in your life that needs to be changed. It's people come in whose life is a mess and we say, let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. How he's changed and transformed me. I want to talk just a second about three chairs. And if you've been around Shiloh a while, you've seen the three chairs before. But this first chair is the chair of a new believer. Someone who's just made a decision to follow Jesus and said, I'm going to give my life to him. And this chair in our church is so important because it means people are starting to grow up in their faith. And they're walking with other believers. And they're learning and they're growing. But our hope is that people wouldn't stop in this chair. That there's another chair. And I'll call this the chair for the maturing believer. Because again, that's a process. It's not something we arrive at. And this chair is the chair of those who are growing in their faith and, and starting to serve and share out of the gifts that God has done as they've seen God at work and the Spirit is transforming and working within them. The problem is most churches move people from this chair to this chair and we get really, really comfortable sitting in this chair. Because by the time we get to this chair, we know all the stories. And the person in this chair hears about how amazing God's grace is. In this chair, we can tell you all about it. 
I know all the stories of God's goodness. But the purpose of this chair is not to be a place of comfort. The purpose of this chair, the maturing believer, is that our focus moves from on us growing in Christ to us growing other people in Christ. And while in this chair, our vision is about us maturing, this chair is about others maturing. In the ways that we can serve and share and use our gifts and talents and abilities for His kingdom as the Spirit continues to grow us. And I want to talk about one other chair. And honestly, this chair might be one of the most important chairs. This is an empty chair. This is the chair for the person who does not yet know Jesus. Or the person who's known about Jesus and has been hurt or burned or broken and walked away. And this chair is the chair where we say there are no boundaries. We don't want to burden you with any rules. We want you to come and hear about Jesus. We want you to come and see the beauty of Christ and what He's doing in this world and in our lives. And you are welcome. And see, so many times in the cycle of a church, people will move from this chair to this chair to this chair and get so comfortable in this chair that we forget about this chair. And if all three of these chairs do not exist in our churches, we cease to be a church. We just become a club where we're all comfortable with our faith. There are a lot of people in our world who are broken and hurting and searching. And churches, like I said, have kind of a dark cloud over them. But what people will be drawn to is not our programs, is not our facilities, 
Those can help. But what people will be drawn to will be people that love, care for them, embrace them, minister to them, share with them, love them, live with them, and invest in them. And when you invest in people, it is much easier to invite them in this journey to follow Jesus. If one of these three chairs disappears, we have a problem. See, about 2,000 years ago, that letter that was written was a huge investment in the lives of people. And people who did not know Jesus were invited to follow him. And because that was the pattern of the early church, the early church grew into this unstoppable force that Jesus promised it would be. And I believe still is today. So as we wrap up this morning, who is the person in your life who sits in this seat right now? Who is the person that God has placed you in their life for a purpose and for a reason? And they're in this seat right now, the unbeliever. And here's what I want you to do over the next week. Next month. Start praying for this person in your life. That God would continue to give you the opportunity to invest in them as you invite them to follow and love Jesus. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. Father, we thank you that all of us began in this chair. And Father, by your grace, have loved us, invested in us, sacrificed for us. And Father, my hope is I mature as a believer, as we mature as a believer, that we would invest in the lives of others in the same way that you have invested in us. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.